Well, this morning, the verses I'm going to preach on are from Mark chapter 1. They may sound familiar from last week, verses 21 through 34. If you turn there now with me, I will read them before we begin. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. but, uh, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Father God, as we come now to see your conflict with the forces of evil, we pray, Lord God, that you would, in fact, come into conflict with the forces of evil within each of us, within our midst, within your church. We know, Lord God, that the cleaning of the world begins in the temple of the Lord. And we pray, Lord, now that you would come here and by the power of your spirit, by your word, and clean your temple. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we pray, Lord, that you would have no mercy in giving us mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, There is a lot going on here. There is a lot of repetitive themes here in the first couple chapters of Mark, and uh, teasing them out and figuring out which ones to talk about in which order can can be a little uh, hard. (laughs) The Bible, you know, you can't just come in and do uh, a 13-verse or whatever section and, and and just nail it all in 45 minutes. There is a lot going on here. There's still a lot of unanswered questions, okay? Every week I'm going to mention that there are. Who is this guy Jesus? What happened to John? Why does he have the Spirit? What happened in the wilderness? And and even here, there are things that I'm going to pass by. But I I don't want you to despair. (laughs) Uh, I'm not avoiding them because they're too difficult. I'm not avoiding them because they're unnecessary. It's just not time yet. I, I kind of want us to go through this walk that Mark is sending, this journey that Mark is sending us on with the same kind of, the, the, the ignorance that he intends. I don't want to reveal too much too early because as he goes, the story just gets better and better and better. There is an assumption that I make, a presupposition that I have about demons, and, and that is that they, at the, the point of Jesus' coming, rule the world. The world was, in fact, theirs. Uh, this is why Satan could offer the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. He couldn't have done it unless he owned them. Now, how that came to be is a long and interesting story that has to do with a field of study called cosmology, which uh, we're not going to get into today. I, I, I said that we would, but we're not. it's not time. 
It's not time to pull back that curtain. When we get to chapter 3, verse 27, where Jesus declares that he has bound the strong man, that is when we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the real king coming and throwing down the old king. Uh, there, there are mysteries here. Uh, when Adam fails, God puts uh, angels in charge of protecting the Garden of Eden. Um, in, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus came lower than the angels. What does that mean? Uh, we're going to talk about all of that. The other thing is, is this mysterious silencing issue. Why, why is Jesus doing all these very public things and then telling everyone to be quiet about it? That, that is actually a very complicated issue that I, I thought I understood and then I didn't understand stand, and then I thought I did again, and then I didn't, and, and so I'm still working on that. <laughs> it, it's, uh, there's a lot of smart people who do not agree on why, so we're going to cover that, but he, he, he does that for a long time. He tells a lot of people to be quiet, so as soon as I figure it out, we'll do a sermon on it. But for now, we're going to talk about the enemy within. Now, the other presupposition I'm, I'm making is that it is nearly impossible for demons to possess people at this point. And, and the reason isn't because they can't, it just in, as, a, as a class of beings, but it's because now we live under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, and, and they just don't have the power that they once did. So I'm going to make a typological, metaphorical um, move here, where when I talk about the demons in this church, I'm not talking about demons. Okay? I'm t- the, the forces of darkness... Sin, death, and Satan, that is still a potent thing in this world. And, and it's, right, Satan bent us all out of shape by the fall so that because he is not universal. He can't be all places at all times. So he twisted us all up because, we, so we carry the enemy within us. And so when I'm talking about the forces of darkness and demons, it's not because I feel like Covey and I need to do an exorcism after the service. Don't worry, Covey. It, it, it's because we really do have idols. We really do have darkness, not only in our own hearts, in our own body here, but it, it is potent in this world. We've, we've been seeing, right, the demoniac here screams out because he's being cast out, and we've seen an awful lot of this. Um, I saw this hilarious video where these people were, like, hurling themselves against the Supreme Court door or something. I don't know, they were screaming and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> and I was like, oh, look, that's, like, what I'm preaching about. <laughs> So let's get into this text, okay? The Lord Jesus Christ comes and he preaches in a synagogue. Okay, he's not yet famous. There's not crowds that are coming. He shows up at a particular synagogue on any given Sunday. He just walks in the door, okay? Nobody knows he's coming. Nobody knows, nobody's prepared. So that's important to remember as we begin this journey. The immediate result of the preaching of Jesus is not harmony, it's not peace, but division and strife. The immediate response that he gets is strife and warfare, conflict. The demoniac, that is a really bizarre word. I actually, I went on Google three times just to make sure I was saying it correct, because Laura's not here. She's in Afghanistan. I can't ask her. (laughs) But think of the word maniac, okay? Someone possessed by mania. A demoniac is someone who's possessed by, I I have a hard time not laughing every time I say the word, because it just sounds so funny. But I, I will not put any more attention on. The demoniac bears unwilling witness to the person and work of Jesus. He can't help himself. He recoils instinctively from God's purity, realizing that here in this preacher, who uh, he had nothing in common with this preacher. He had nothing in common with who Jesus is and what he's there to do, right? Here is an evil spirit possessing a man. Here is the spirit of God dwelling on the Son of God. And, and you see the parallels there. 
A man possessed by an evil spirit and Jesus possessed by the spirit of God. He, the, the spirit imme- reacts immediately because he understands that there is some very serious warfare going on now simply by the fact that Jesus is there. Capernaum, this town in which the synagogue is in, is the scene of the miracle. Now, this was a very proud city of unbelief compared with Tyre and Sidon, which would fare better in the day of judgment. We read this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Think about that for a second. Right? What, like when we compare Seattle to the worst possible city we can think of in the Bible, typically we think Sodom, right? Because everyone knows that hellfire came down out of the sky and smote everyone, right? And that city is pretty bad. Well, Jesus, it turns out there's a city that's worse. Because Jesus has come here, and Jesus is doing mighty works, and Jesus is declaring the word of the Lord, and they have refused to believe. It's going to go better in the judgment. For Think about that. Abraham said, even if there's ten, will you still cast the city? Will you still destroy the city? Right? Think how few righteous people were found in Sodom. And it, they're going to do better than Capernaum. That's a little frightening. It's a strange commentary on the spiritual situation in Capernaum that a demoniac could worship in the synagogue with, a, with no sense of incongruity. <laughs> Here's my people. right? The man possessed of the demon is with his folks, and his folks are in the synagogue worshiping the living God. Uh, the fact that nobody, he had never, no, nobody says, what are you doing here? Right? The guy had been there, he's hearing the word preached every week because he's in a synagogue. Turns out it's okay. Turns out the kind of preaching they'd been having there, uh, the, the demon was perfectly content to sit under that kind of <laughs> rabbi. That's also very alarming. It is probable that the following... Oh, okay, so now, now what we're going to get into now is a little bit of the, con, the actual conflict and the things that were said. The disturbance which Jesus brings was expressed in the excited response of the demoniac who sensed in Jesus a threat to his very existence. His cry of terror, expressed in verse 24, is laden with the language of defense and resistance. The demoniac does not confess the dignity of Jesus but uses the accepted terms of opposition in the attempt to disarm him. What the demon says is roughly equivalent to, you have no business with us yet. That's actually, if you translated it directly, that's what it would say. You have no business with us yet. It is probable that the following statement is not a question, but a declaration. You have come to destroy us. The note of conflict implied is important. It is crucial. For the demonic power understands more clearly than the people the decisive significance of the presence of Jesus. The demon gets what's going on. The people don't get what's going on. The synagogue leaders don't even get what's going on. Even when he starts performing miracles, people don't understand what's really going on. But the demon knows, and the demon is terrified. Terrified. From a carp- uh, he's terrified of a carpenter. <laughs> Think about that. Right? From Nazareth. In the question, what have we to do with you, it is natural to find a reference to all the demonic powers who shall be destroyed by Jesus. It is also distinctly possible that the demoniac identifies himself with the congregation. Now, people always just assume he means the demons. 
But it's quite possible the guy stands up in the middle of the church and says, what do you have to do with us? Now, we make that assumption about the demons, but if we know what Capernaum is like, it's actually a little confusing as to who he means. Do you mean, you know, all of us demons spread out all over Israel? Or do you mean all of us sitting here who are perfectly content to have the externals of religion and not the internals of religion? Do you mean us, this congregation that is perfectly fine with a demon-possessed man, you know, coming in and helping out with the communion every week? That kind of thing, right? (laughs) It's just a, oh man. The unclean spirit recognizes Jesus is the Holy One of God, the bearer of the Holy Spirit. And between the Holy Spirit and the unclean spirit, there exists a deadly antithesis that the demons know. If only we knew it. If only we knew the deadly antithesis between these two spirits, these two forces. These, right? They're not equal. They're not equal. I'm not at all saying that there's this war going on between two equal powers. But there is a war going on between two powers. There is a war going on between two powers. Now, the formula of recognition that the, that the demon uses is interesting because no people say this about him. He says the son of God. The only person that says he's the son of God is the Roman soldier at the very end of the book of Mark. There's a distinction between what the sick people call him and what the demons call him. The demons understand exactly who he is. They call him the son of God, the holy one of God. The, the sick people call him different things. They call him the son of David, they call him master, they call him Lord, they call him teacher. They don't understand that he is God, that he is God. Mark makes a distinction between those who are ill and those who are possessed. Now, this is only important because it refutes the old lie that first century people were stupid. First century people were not stupid. They did not think that you got the common cold because you were possessed by a demon. I don't know how many times I've read that in bad history books. People in the olden times thought everything was because of the powers of evil, right? And so your house, everybody gets the flu in your house, and they want to burn you all as witches. I mean, nobody ever thought that way, okay? They understand the difference between a sick person and a person who's possessed by a demon. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit with the words, be silent and come out of him. The defensive address of the demon, the demon names him, by the way, and, and this is actually a little hard to understand for us, but naming things gives you power over them. That's why Adam was given the right to name the animals. He was the, the highest authority in the land, and he was the one who was given the right to name the animals because naming something gives you power over it. And so the demon <laughs> tries, in his, his silly little way, to take power over Jesus by saying his name. Because in power struggles like this, the naming... It, the power of words and the power of naming is its own thing, and I don't have time to can fully explain it. That's its own series of sermons. But he attempts to take control of Jesus, and Jesus is, laughs it up by saying, essentially, if you translate it into modern English, Jesus just says, shut up. Shut up. And what does the demon do? The demon shuts up, right? His, his sad little attempt to take control of Jesus, he's put into his place. Jesus' silencing of the demon was an aspect of the conflict which has cosmic dimensions. The sustained encounter of the Son of God with the powers of Satan, the silencing and expulsion of the demon, is proof of that judgment that Jesus has come to initiate. Jesus is coming to judge the things of this land. He's coming to clean Israel. And so by, by telling this demon to shut up and get out, that is his judgment. 
He's casting it out. And casting out is something that is metaphorically means like, you know, throwing them into hell, defeating them. It's like we say now, throw them down. If you threw somebody down, you'd be defeating them. If you cast someone out, you're defeating them. Because sending someone into exile is the same thing as defeating them. It's not a phrase that we typically use. In fact, even throwing down, I don't, right? Usually we say we beat them down. That's usually a phrase that we say. So it's, it's just amazing how language changes. He's saying a, a great deal more than we think when he says, get out. Get out. He's casting him out. The instant response of Jesus was to muzzle this involuntary demon testimony and free the man from the devil. The last person he wants saying his name is a demon. He doesn't want praise or recognition from them. He wants silence and obedience. He is now the authority. He is now the king. And he is here and he's not messing around. You're not going to sully my name by saying it. After the exorcism, Mark repeats the reference to Jesus' amazing authority. Jesus' teaching was much more than a collection of encouraging ideas or self-help information. It was an exercise of power. When he preaches, when he says words, they do something. They bring about a conflict. That's what his preaching does. And then in the midst of that conflict, he shows his authority by saying more words. So the word of Jesus has power. They're not just words. They're not just words. Jesus' preaching and teaching were not inspirational in the typical sense. He did not dispense helpful and hopeful thoughts. His sermons and teachings were expositions of power. They were confrontational. When he spoke, something happened. There is nothing at all wrong with words of encouragement. Hope is a fragile thing for most people. And the gospel is surely a message of hope. And yet sermons devoid of any call for change fall short of the model of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is not a means to promote the status quo. It is the power of God at work in history to bring wholeness and healing to people and the structures of power and culture in which we live. There's nothing wrong with a little hope, a little hope and change. <laughs> but the word of God that is just, that just if, if the preacher just comes up here and makes everybody feel better, he's not doing a good job. He's not casting anything out. There's no conflict. And, that, and that's what we find here. It, what happens? Jesus comes in, and his, his presence is here in the midst of these people. His word is here in the midst of these people. And what you have immediately is conflict. That is what the word of God is meant to do, to create conflict. But it's not supposed to give me peace. Peace always comes after conflict. Right? No nations ever got together and had peace accords, peace, signed peace treaties without a war first. Right? Nobody does that. The reason you have a peace treaty is, is to close the conflict. And, and this is what this sermon is about. This is what this story is about. The presence of God and the word of God to bring conflict into our lives with the powers of evil. That is what we are here to do. That is what we all need more of, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. The word of God, ladies and gentlemen, the word of God is meant to have an effect on you. And, and, it's, and, and it's the kind of conflict I hope that you come to see that you need more often than once a week. Right? We had verses read for us this morning. They were excellent. I've read some verses here. If that's the only time you come in conflict with the, conflict with the word of God, there is a very serious problem. Let me just read some verses for you to drive this home. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We're going to come back to that. C.S. Lewis is going to explain that for us later in a very compelling way. The living and active word is meant to make you living and active. That's what it does. It takes dead people and it makes them alive. It takes fruitlessness and makes it fruitful. That's what the word of God does. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And the man of God may be, com- that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, you were not there in Capernaum, were you? You did not hear Jesus speak. And so, Paul is making a very helpful point here. All scripture is breathed out by God. When you're holding the book in your hands, this book right here, and you're reading it, it's as if you can feel the breath of God on your face. He's speaking right there in your midst, as if you're in Capernaum, hearing the Lord Jesus Christ preach. Now, that's a very unique way of looking at the Word of God. I thought it was the thing that we, you know, the box we check before we get our coffee in the morning. It's that thing we have on in the background while we're folding clothes. Right? We've got to get our Bible reading in. We'll make sure we do it at some point, if we do it at all. Where is God? Do you long for the breath of the Lord on your face? Open his word and hear him. Open his word and let him speak directly to you. The word of God takes the sin out of your hands and gives you the righteousness of Christ to fulfill your ministry. Right? It, it makes you complete. It equips you for good work. I'm going to go to Psalm 19 now. This is uh, one that I pray often when I, over you guys. When I, when I have the bullets in there, I open it up, and I pray that, that this would be true for every one of you. I'll read it for you out loud. It's Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. Okay, and th- this is my prayer for all of us, that the, law of God, that the law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycombs. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Great reward. Now, I I don't think I would be wrong in testifying that the majority of us tend to worry a little bit more about how much gold is down at BECU than how often we're reading the Word of God. And yet, what is more valuable? Now, okay, we all assent. Okay, all right. Here we are. we're, We're super spiritual. It's Sunday. We agree. The Word of God is more valuable than gold. And then we get up from here, and what do we go do? Do we act like that's true? Do we treat it that way? Right? 
the demoniac was right there in the midst of the people of God. The evil forces and the unbelief was right there in the middle of the people of God. And here, and here by reading the word, I'm dem- this is exactly what's supposed to happen. Do you feel a burning in your bosom? Do you feel uncomfortable? Do you feel stirred up? <laughs> Eric is shaking his head. Yes, my work here is done. Now, I, I, I would like to be very, there's, there's other verses, and this one I've read all the, I read all the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when you, when you, the word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is, when, you, when you're looking at it, you're looking at the face of Jesus Christ. This is what I was going back to saying earlier. When you're looking at the word of God, you're looking at Jesus. So you can never say, well, I never saw him. You did see him. He's right here. His presence in his word, just like it was in Capernaum. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 14. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There is no other way to prepare your mind. There is no other way to be sober-minded. There is no other way to be full of hope. There is no other way to have the grace of God than at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, we know, I think, that the revelation of Jesus Christ is painful. I hope that we know it. Right? I, I, again, I want to go back. Reading the Bible should not be super comforting all the time. <laughs> if it is, you're not reading the whole thing. You're not reading the whole thing. If you only read the parts that make you feel just fine, you are failing in reading the Bible. You have to read the parts that make you feel uncomfortable. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, then you're just proving my point. The revelation of Jesus, when he comes and he speaks in our presence like he did in Capernaum, the darkness inside of us screams out, doesn't it? And if it doesn't, then that is an entirely different problem. Now, I think most of us, I'm going to assume the best of everyone in the room, and I'm going to assume that we all know that it's painful to have the voice of Jesus cry out and to have the darkness inside of us scream to lurch, to jerk, to flinch, to clench. I think we all know what that means. Now, we don't want that, do we? Now again, it's, super, it's Sunday, baby, so let's assent to all the right things. No, I love confronting the word of God. I love it. That pain inside of me, when I think of all those sins, sweet Jesus, bring it. Nobody says that, right? Nobody says that. Nobody goes home and says, hey, guys, let's read the Bible until we find at least like a sin or two that we can confess to one another. Hey, so-and-so family, you guys want to come over (laughs) on Saturday? We'll take turns reading the Bible to one another until somebody has a a sin to confess. That is not how we live our lives. The conflict, though, this conflict that I'm talking about is the difference between life and death is the difference between life and death. Now let's think about this for a moment. The demon-possessed man is in the synagogue. They did not just let anybody in there. right? In, in a synagogue, it's not like here. We, open, we throw the doors open and amen, anybody and everybody can come. But 
they would check you at the door if you look dirty in the synagogue. If you're not wearing the right hat with the right curls, they don't know who you are. It doesn't look like you were, you were washing down at the, at the public washrooms down the street, getting yourself ready. You, you don't know the words. You don't know the shibboleth. They did not just let anybody in there. How you got in there was keeping the externals of the religion perfectly. You kept the law. You kept the holidays. You tied down to your mint and your dill. And so what do you think this demoniac had to go through in order to be allowed into this place? Imagine the level of hypocrisy. There he sits, right, week in and week out, right there in the midst of the people of God, and he's got a demon inside of him. It doesn't say that the demon came, you know, running in and snuck up on him and jumped on him right there in the middle of the service, right? He brought it in with, with the right hair and the right hat and the right observances. There was a long list of laws and observances, rituals, feast days, sacrifices, washings, offerings, and shibboleths, things that you had to say and do. And here the guy is, as ritually clean as everybody else. And yet his heart could not be further than from the living God because the guy is possessed by a demon. This is a warning to all of us. How was this guy able to sit there for so long, never confronted by the actual word of God? Right? What do they do every week? They get this scroll out and they read it. They sing songs. They go to festivals where they remember all the glorious things that God has done in their history. And they participate in sacrifices to the living God. This guy, in order to be this kind of Jew, has got to go up to the temple from time to time. How does he get in here amongst these people? What kind of rabbis does this guy have? What kind of community? Now, just this week, because God is kind, I read this from Spurgeon in his book, Lectures to My Students. People go to their place of worship and sit down comfortably and think they must be Christians, when all the time, all that their religion consists in is listening to an orator having their ears tickled. Thousands are congratulating themselves and even blessing God that they are devout worshipers, when at the same time they are living in an unregenerate state having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He who presides over a system which aims at nothing higher than formalism is far more than a servant of the devil than a minister of God. I am not here saying you have a problem. I am here saying we have a problem. I want that to be clear. I'm reminded constantly of that passage in uh, Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. (laughs) There's a, here's all these happy Christians going up the road, and they run into Jesus, and they're like, Lord, and he, how did you people get in here? Said, Where did you guys come from? What gate did you s- sneak around? What fence did you hop? And they're like, well, Jesus, we're, no, I, I don't know who you are, and he casts them out. And when he casts them out into the darkness, you know the first person they meet? Their minister. And, they, and they're all dumbfounded, and they say... What were you teaching us all those years? What were you getting us to believe? You, you, you called us all into that church to make us twice the sons of Satan that you are. I'm not talking about you having a problem. I'm talking about us having a problem. If the conflict with Jesus, if the conflict with the word of God is not happening, not only in the worship service, but in our everyday lives, then, then we should just pack it up. Covey can write checks to everybody's tithe money. You can have it back. We'll shut the doors, and we'll move on. 
if you do not want this conflict, if you resist this conflict, if we continue to ignore Jesus Christ and the, and the words that he's saying, if they continue to have absolutely no power over us, what's the point? If you can't tell the difference between one of us sitting here and any other 30-something suburbanite, what's the point? What's the point? Now, this is called a fig leaf. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve sin. They realize they're naked. They didn't know before. And the first thing they do is they, they go and sew some leaves together and make undies out of it because they're ashamed. And then they hide behind a tree as if that's going to hide them from God. And sometimes, sometimes, the fig leaf is the church. The fig leaf is the hymnals. The fig leaf is the extraordinarily expensive Bible that you purchase from Crossway. Right? He's got to be religious if the leather is that nice. <laughs> Look at all that gold leaf. Look at Man, listen to him sing. Right? What, what, whatever the fig leaves are, different churches have different ones. ACCS schools, fat theology books, homeschooling, liturgies, Christian rock bands, tats and skinny jeans, organic farming. All different churches have their own little fig leaves. Right? And if you go there, you'll find out what the fig leaves are. I, there's, I actually have a tattoo on my arm. And I got it going to Mars Hill. I got it after reading the chapter in Mark's book about why Christians should have tats. Right? And I was like, get me some fig leaf right here, baby. And I've been, I was so cool. And you know how hard that is now to hide in conservative circles? Right? And then it was awesome at Providence when I taught there for two years. All the kids were like, yes, finally an adult who gets us. And I would just do nothing but preach against tattoos. <laughs> right? It ceased to be a fig leaf. When you really get down to it, I'll go out and get you some khakis, right? Because now here at Providence, that's the fig leaf. We have fig leaves. It's worse than we think. <laughs> when I get down to it, really with this, it's so much worse than we think. The word of God has to come into your life. He needs to speak into all kinds of things. But we're like the demoniac. What have you to do with us? What have you to do with my Netflix queue? What do you have to do with my dinner table? What do you have to do with my checking account? We say the same things. R right now, right? What, what is the Christian church doing? What, what does the word of God, what do you have to do with us? Did you really say that it was just a man and a woman? You see this all over the place. And I, I'm not going to, that's the only example from out there that I'm going to use. Did God really say? Have you ever caught yourself asking that question? In the same spirit, did God really say that I couldn't have pants that tight? Did God really say, right, that I have to tithe 10%? Wasn't it just sort of as the Lord leads? Wasn't it just sort of like a free will offering? The word of God needs to come into conflict. He needs to come in and burn our fig leaves. He'll take them off first. Don't worry. He needs to burn the tree down that we're hiding behind. There is no grove, there is no forest, there is no jungle that we can hide in from the, from the view of God. What are your fig leaves? The demoniac is sitting in the, people, in the midst of the people of God with his darkness. And again, I don't think anyone here is demon-possessed. If, if you are, see Covey. 
<laughs> Not me. Is he coming? What is that darkness? What's that darkness that would just, if you brought it in, into close contact with Jesus Christ, just writhes inside of you? I'm not giving up that. That's not coming anywhere near God. What have you to do with us? This is called hypocrisy. It's called hypocrisy. It's the worst kind of sin for Christians. It's all about, hey, let's go to all the right things, do all the right things. I go to socials, right? Look at my playlist on the radio. We have all kinds of fig leaves. What are yours? What is your, your spouse's? What are your children? Right? If your kid says the right thing and does the right thing, I think Joel had a call about this recently. He, uh, his brother was that kid, right? His brother was the kid who just knew what to say and how to stay out of trouble. Sometimes I think I have a few of those. I have one kid who was, they were doing chores and I was watching them and, and this kid is not young. And I think I've told this story, but it's true. I, I said, you know, you're not doing anything. You're just walking around. <laughs> and my other son said, yeah, he's been doing that for years. <laughs> uh, so you mean to tell me all these years a kid hasn't done a single thing? Nope. Right? And, and there's some hyperbole there. But this, right? Right? He, every, now, think about that now. Everybody gets down on their knees to begin service to confess their sins. Are you like that kid? It looks like it. It looks like they're doing what they're supposed to. Right? You save all that piety up for, for Sunday morning when everybody can see you, and are you even really doing it? It's actually kind of hard for me to do it because it goes so quickly. There's so much to say. Or it's like as soon as it starts, all, all I'm really thinking about is what I'm going to say in the sermon. So if it's the only time I'm doing it, the likelihood of getting it right is, is, uh, is not high. And even if I do nail it, it's only once a week. I can't possibly. Can, if you think you only sin enough to fit it into 30 seconds after Jared comes up here and talks again, we have a an entirely different problem. The demons knew who the Son of God was. You are the son of God. That's not enough. The demoniac is there in the, in the midst of the people of God. He does, he does all the right things, all the perfect external religious stuff, and yet he's there in, in the midst of God. These are things that we should be eminently concerned about. Now, I'm going to read something from C.S. Lewis because I think it's important and I think it speaks to this issue here. What, what the people in Capernaum needed, what the demoniac needed, was the presence of God and the word of God. This is what C.S. Lewis says. When any man comes into the presence of God, he will find, whether he wishes it or not, that all those things which seem to make him so different from the men of other times, or even from his earlier self, have fallen off him. He is back where he always was, where every man always is. Do not let us deceive ourselves. No possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There is no grove, no forest, no jungle thick enough to provide cover. It may happen to any of us at any moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a time too small to even be measured, and in any place, all that seems to divide us from God can flee away, vanish, leaving us naked 
before him like the first man, like the only man, as if nothing but he and I existed. And since that contact cannot be avoided for long, and since it means either bliss or horror, the business of life is to learn to love it. You cannot hide from him. He sees all, it says in Hebrews. His presence is everywhere. And, okay, on top of that, in the blink of an eye, you will stand before him. Now, imagine what that's like if you've been avoiding it your whole life. He will be there like he was in Capernaum. He will speak like he did in Capernaum, and you will be standing before him. Everything that appears to hide you now, everything that appears to stand between you and other men and you and God, all of it will be gone. And you will standing, be standing naked before the, the eyes of God. Now imagine what that would be like if you haven't learned to love it. Now, how do you learn to love it? You do it as often as you can. We, we read in this story that Jesus is there in their midst and and he is speaking his word of power. His presence and his word. He goes on then, he goes to um, Peter's house and they bring their problems before him. Everyone has heard about him. Everybody goes out and they get all the sick people they know and all the demon-possessed people and they all bring them before him. You can't avoid this contact. It will come. It's coming. It's happening now. (laughs) Do you love it? Do you love it? Well, if, if, if you haven't worked up that muscle, right? You need to use a muscle in order for it to be strong, in order for it to be worthwhile at all. The more you use a muscle, the more that muscle can do. The more you go before the face of God, before, the more you let his scalpel do the work in your heart, separating out that cancerous sin, that cancerous darkness, just like he cast out the de- demon, The more you do that, the more you will love him. The more you will see how how much you need him. The more you will have to be grateful to him for. And after the conflict comes the peace. There's no other way. There's a crown coming, but between us and the crown is a cross. Somebody's got to die. Somebody's got to die. There's got to be blood. And if it's, gonna, if it's up to you, where do you stand? What's the hope? But Jesus came and he said, I, I'm, I'm dying for you. I'm switching my blood for yours. I'm going to be the propitiation that Anselm was talking about through Jared this morning. It's going to be me that covers it. You, you don't need fig leaves. Come naked before God and I will clothe you. But it hurts. You're pushing where it's tender. The, the, the cancerous t- uh, tumor is huge. And it's going to hurt a lot to get it out of there. And Jesus says, I know, I know. But it's the only way. There is no other way. And you will find in that moment the hand that touches Peter's mother-in-law. There will be more peace in it, more love, more compassion, more tenderness than any well-placed surgeon in this world. And you will find that thing that you feared is the thing that makes you powerful and strong and humble and good. This is the Lord that we serve. This is the conflict that he is offering. It's not that you feel good. It's that you live forever. And living forever is knowledge of him. Living forever is his presence. Living forever is, is coming before him and loving it. 
Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your son who came into this world to save us. We thank you that he came to Capernaum and cast out that demon for that man. We thank you that you delivered him. We pray, Lord God, we come before you now because we bear in ourselves and in this community our own darkness. And we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy upon us, that by your word, by your presence, you would cast it out. We are terribly afraid, Father. We are fearful creatures. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would teach us to fear you above everything else. Cast out from us all of our idols, burn all of our fig leaves, tear down our kingdoms, and let us, in in the place of our heart where our idols stand now, let Christ stand. And, And let us come to you again and again. Every day, let us draw near to this conflict that we may have peace in Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you and we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.